0: Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Hill that it was unlike any other sermon they'd ever heard before. Uh, Jesus was describing God's kingdom and his way of life that for God's kingdom to come on the earth that it couldn't come by violence it had to come through love and suffering because violence will always breed more violence and so we also saw him demonstrate this kingdom life this new kingdom life Through healing, through his teaching, as he was going from town to town, announcing that the kingdom of God has finally arrived. He teaches his followers through parables and teaches about faith and faithfulness, about authority and power and what that really looks like in God's eyes, about forgiveness and loving your neighbor, about going the extra mile and trusting him as we simply just say, God, I follow you. And that was his simple call. Come follow me. Come follow me. Just all throughout Matthew, Jesus is echoing the same call. Come follow me. And so Jesus encounters people that had varying responses. We saw that there was some positive, that they were like, yes, he's the Messiah. There were some neutral people, people that were kind of closest to him, his family, and even John the Baptist, who was kind of precursor to Jesus. His disciples were all kind of wondering, okay, is Jesus really the Messiah? So you and then, then you had the total negative response to Jesus and his message, which is the religious establishment, the religious rulers, that God was doing something new and they couldn't see it, and he was threatening their power structure. And so we have these varying responses to Jesus back then, as we still do today. But increasingly, Jesus was posing himself as a threat to the religious order. And uh, last week we saw that Jesus comes in the temple. He throws the tables upside down. He says, you've turned a house, uh, my house, into a, this should be a house of prayer, but now it's filled with brigands. Brigands were revolutionaries, which that term will come up again today. They, was, they were revolutionaries. They were zealots that were wanting Jewish people to rise up and throw off the constraints of Rome. And there was this increasing uh, warlike mentality that had invaded the temple that was getting bread in the temple. And Jesus came to turn that whole thing upside down. And he foretells that when this temple, he prophesies that this temple is going to be destroyed. The very centerpiece of their worship that the temple was going to be destroyed. And he says, within this generation, that's going to happen. And lo and behold, within 40 years of Jesus uttering these words of judgment upon upon Israel the temple fell in 70 AD by Rome coming in and destroying it and he said that it would be a sign to the world when this happens this would be the ultimate capstone to his vindication of being Jesus the Messiah and it would be a sign to the world that Jesus is indeed Messiah he is the Christ and has come through has come in and through Jesus to forgive sin and bring God's rule and reign. So, with that all in the disciples' ears, we're going to look kind of at the last section of Matthew, uh, beginning in uh, chapter 28, and the story is coming to a climax. And we're going to look at three main scenes that culminate this story, Passover, Pilate, and then at the end the great prestige, which is the third part of a magic trick, when the prestige, when it is all revealed, when people see the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually brought. So, with that, Matthew 28, that night it says he took his disciples aside and he celebrates this Passover meal. He tells his disciples, go and prepare this meal. This was a a big thing. This wasn't just a normal Sabbath dinner. This This was Passover. And Passover, they would celebrate. It was an annual Jewish celebration, that you would celebrate what happened in Egypt with the Jewish people. There was special food and drink that they had, were prescribed by customs going back thousands of years from the, to the time of Moses. And there would be particular words and prayers shared at Passover. And the words would tell a story of how God's people, Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt, was liberated by God himself. The final plague that broke Pharaoh's resolve was, uh, un, was unless you had blood of a lamb sprinkled over your doorpost, then the firstborn of each family of the town would be killed. And it happened, and Pharaoh relented and released them, and they passed through the Red Sea, leaving behind slavery and going in to their promised land. Now this dinner, at this dinner, the head of the household usually was shared with family, And the head of the household was responsible of leading this Passover meal. Again, it had been the same way for millennia, over since the time of Moses. They celebrated the Passover lamb being shed that would give them healing and protect them from God's judgment. And so the head of the household would be leading these these things and so naturally the disciples are expecting Jesus to kind of dive right into the normal routine, the normal tradition, the normal rhythm of Passover. But as we see here in verse 26, Jesus takes it a little differently. In verse 26 it says as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the new covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. What? This isn't the normal Passover meal. This is not the script, Jesus. You just turned the whole story, this this story that goes back millennia, this tradition, and he wraps it all up. He wraps this entire story and places the focus solely on himself, being the Passover lamb that is now to be shed for the forgiveness of not just Israel, but for the entire world. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures and leading in a new direction into the promised land of the kingdom of God. He's the firstborn and He Himself, like I said, the Passover land. The Jews believed for some while that the original Exodus pointed actually to a new one in which God would do at last what He long promised that he would forgive the sins of Israel and the world once and for all. I remember sharing my, or having my first communion when I was a kid, and uh, the crackers were always stale. And so when I think of like, when I thought of uh, communion, I just thought of, man, stale Jesus. I never really got this kind of thing that, Jesus shared with his disciples, and it's, he's rewriting the Passover story. He himself. He's the actual fulfillment of the thing that they've been celebrating year after year after year, and here finally, God's sacrificial lamb, his own son, to liberate people from slavery and wash them new in total and complete forgiveness. So Jesus takes the bread and the wine from the meal as new symbols of a new covenant, showing that he is coming. His coming death would be a sacrifice that would redeem His people from slavery to sin and evil. This new covenant was made with shedding His blood. It's amazing. So as you read it this week, just imagine the disciples' expectation and the way Jesus takes it. And it's throughout this entire last section, the disciples' expectation, and Jesus takes it in a different direction. So, here we go. Then, Jesus goes and prays in the garden. He goes off by himself, brings three of his closest disciples with him, saying, hey guys, can you pray with me? I need to go off, I need to seek the Lord, making sure that this is his will. His three disciples that he's spent the last three and a half years with, he's saying, come on, this is his hour. And he's been announcing it for weeks, and they're anticipating he's gone into Jerusalem. He's turned over the tables. Riots are about to break out. They knew the tension was now culminating in Jesus' ministry. And he says, hey, i got to go off and pray. Pray with me. And three times... After the first time, Jesus comes back, his disciples are asleep. Maybe that little too much wine at the Passover meal. It was a big celebration. I don't know what it is, but every time Jesus went off to pray, he comes back and his disciples are asleep. And he goes and prays and he says, God, if you could take this cup from me. He knew what he needed to do. He says, if you could take this cup from me, please, God, please. But not my will, but your will be done. And he says this almost rhythmically over and over, where Jesus is, fi- is yielding completely to the will of the Father. And so he gets betrayed by one of his own, Judas. Many, a lot of different reasons why people think Judas betrayed Jesus. Maybe it was just outright he didn't like him. That's sometimes how he gets kind of portrayed. Maybe Judas was trying to accelerate Jesus's enthronement as king. Maybe he was trying to get this show going. Man, we've been following you for three and a half years. Let's go. Where's, when's this revolution going to begin? Again, he still had in his, old, in his mind that old pattern that, the, that Messiah was going to come and wipe out, demolish the ruling powers of the world and that he would himself set up power forever. But That's not how Jesus takes it. And so now we see this showdown. Last week, the message was called the showdown. Jesus and the religious leaders, priests and elders, and this back and forth, they try to trap him. And finally, this showdown has come to its climax of Jesus being in front of the high priest, the high priest, Caiaphas. And after some accusations and demands, he answers them, Jesus and demands that he answers them Jesus is silent then he finally exclaims I demand in the name of the living god that you tell us whether you are the messiah the son of the living god just point blank some don't you like don't you like point blank questions i mean not maybe so much in this instance but i love point blank questions that just get right to the heart of it let's stop dancing around this and let's actually start talking about the thing we need to be talking about jesus are you the messiah and his response is, "It is as you say." And they in the, the high priest, and the elders are so angry because he, it means that he's God's son, it means that he's putting himself on the same level as God, that he and God are one and the same. And they, 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 they tore their clothes, they wailed out, they cried. He just spoke blasphemy. Do you not see everyone around? He just blasphemed the living God. And they get enraged, and they spit on him, they mock him, they beat him, and they sentence him to death. Wow. They hand him over to the Roman ruler that ruled over Judea, of which Jerusalem was the capital. His name was Pontius Pilate. Now we know from a historian, his name was Josephus, a Jewish historian. We know a lot about Pilate, actually. He was a minor Roman official tasked with ruling over Judea. He was frequently accused by his subjects of being extremely heavy-handed, and he allowed troops to kill innocent, unarmed civilians, and he also stole, um, he took money from the temple treasury and actually used it for the purposes of the state. And so Pilate was not a good guy in the eyes of the Jews under his rule. And and so Pilate interviews Jesus, and he can tell by his responses or his non-responses that there was something significant about Jesus. His wife even has a dream about him, which we'll see. And so, so, but Pilate, in his heart, he knows that this guy is innocent, but he has a riot, a possible riot on his hands outside the door if he doesn't handle this with extreme tactfulness, that he is going to have a riot on his hands and his own leadership is in jeopardy if he can't keep the people that he's ruling over under control. And so, here is how he handles it. Matthew twenty-seven, fifteen. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd anyone they wanted. So this is how he's thinking, okay, this guy is innocent. If I just give my normal, like one person gets off, one person gets absolved, maybe I could use that in this case and see this innocent guy go free. But that's not where Jesus took it. This year, Uh, This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Jesus Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? We We knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, As Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message, Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him! This is the same crowd that just a week before that had seen Jesus riding in on a donkey, which was a mess- messianic sign that he's coming to take over the place. And these same people that were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise be! You know, man, the Messiah's coming. The same crowd turns and says, Crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him! Not even an answer. Just a reaction. Much like we find today. Pilate saw that he he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and in front of the whole crowd he washed his hands saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take the responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. This meeting in between Jesus of Nazareth and Pilate of Rome is actually the closest we get to see the King of Kings being put up against the Lord of the world, the self-proclaimed Lord of the world. And we are invited to watch as both sides use the weapons that match their particular claim. The power of aggression that translated into a justice system that benefited the rulers and the elite, or the power of silence, of suffering, and of love. Jesus staked his entire belief that God would vindicate him, that God would back him up, that he doesn't have to defend himself, that God himself would be his defender. And it was strange fate that there should be at this same, in this same area in Jerusalem, that there would be another guy named Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a very common name back then. It's Joshua, it's actually the name Joshua. And um, so here's this guy, Jesus Barabbas, and Matthew highlights the fact that Pilate is asking the crowd to choose for their festival celebration one of these Jesuses to be released. And by the end of the passage, it's crystal clear, as we saw, Barabbas, this interesting person, Barabbas getting set free as Jesus gives his life. And we see in this picture that actually Barabbas is all of us. That when Jesus comes, when Jesus died, a brigand goes free. The sinners go free. We all go free. That is, after all, what a Passover story ought to be about. Jesus makes his way through the Red Sea of sin and death, inviting Barabbas in an increasing number ever since to walk through to freedom. Has that been a part of your story? Have you felt imprisoned or captive, sentenced to death, no hope, hopeless, depressed? Jesus gives his life for you for that person. And it was interesting with the chief priests they were guilty. With Rome they were guilty. With Judas he was guilty. But the crowd the crowd is interesting because it was the crowd that yelled the decision. And The reason why this whole story coming together the way Matthew describes it is that it had to be universally shown that Barabbas was a part of all of us, that we are all sinful, that we are all broken vessels, that we are all not living out the call of God on our life, that we are made in His image to be in allegiance under our Heavenly Father to be a part of the family business of expanding the kingdom. And so, what became universal sin, Jesus offered a universal redemption. But after fiercely beating and mocking and torturing him, he's led out of the city gates and crucified. We hear the same words whispered to him in the wilderness by Satan in the first part of Matthew, in Matthew 4. The same utterances are being whispered and shouted to him as he's up on the cross. If you really are the Messiah, prove it. If you really are Him, pull yourself down off the cross. If you really are Him, turn these stones into bread. This same voice of the enemy that's trying to goad the Son of God to prove it. But Him being on the cross is actually proving that He's following through. That He's giving His life as a ransom for many. And with a brigand to His left and a brigand to the, his right, he's enthroned as king, not only of the Jews, but of the entire world. His throne is a cross. The long-awaited Messiah is now crucified in his last breath. It is finished. And it says, the clouds, form, clouds formed and the earth shook and the veil in the temple... Now, that was what he had just proclaimed judgment on. And the veil in the temple, how the temple was made, there was an outer court, then there was an inner court. Of course, all the women were in the outer court and all the healthy fellows were in the inner court. And then there was this place called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where the high priest, once a year during Passover, would go in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people and that veil that when Jesus uttered his last breath that veil torn in two it says specifically from top to bottom so whether that be caused by the earthquake or God's hand himself that veil was torn it, wore, it weighed three to five tons it was ten inches thick this veil was torn in two Jesus' death "...is the beginning of the end for the system that had opposed him, that had refused to heed his announcement of the kingdom of God arriving and his summons to follow him, that that they denied, Israel denied its vocation of being a city set on a hill and being light in the world of which the nations would flock. That was their original call. But here's Jesus, God's own Son, bringing a new covenant." and they can't let go of the old. Instead, the nations will flock now to a different hill, to the hill of Calvary, where they, the redeemed people of God, actually become a living temple in which God's presence lives among them. Wow. Matthew then then masterfully tells of his resurrection three days later, and he includes these fine details that it seems like All these little little details he includes is that he's warding off, it seems like, arguments, doubts, and reasonings that would proclaim that Jesus was not the Messiah, that that maybe his body was taken, or uh, maybe other things happened after his resurrection or after his death that people were imagining things, and so he writes in a very specific way to kind of ward off any of those arguments. And then... He meets his disciples. He says, I'll meet you in Galilee. After I rise, I'll meet you in Galilee. They're now in Galilee, back where, kind of where it all began. And Jesus utters this commission to his followers. Matthew 28:18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. I'm going to pause just so that we can actually hear these words, because you may have heard this phrase or this Great Commission many times. But within the context of what Matthew is trying to communicate and within just our own mind, I, just, I hope that we can read these afresh to see the brilliance, the awe, the majesty of what Jesus is actually telling his disciples. Jesus came to his disciples and told them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Wow. And it's clear that Matthew wants us to see that in Jesus, the promise of the very first chapter has now been fulfilled. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us now and forever. Jesus had been, has he said that he has been given complete authority over heaven and earth that doesn't mean that this world is already completely as jesus intends it to be it's that he's working and taking it where it was under the rule of not only death but of corruption greed and every kind of sin and is to bring it by slow means or quick through under into god's rule of his life-changing love And how's he doing this? And again, it's the biggest shock. He chooses us to be his agents, to be his ambassadors, to bring and help establish and partner with God as he grows his kingdom. Amazing. What was lost in the garden, our authority over spiritual beings, and authority over the planet. Jesus now is saying, I've secured that for you, and now I'm giving it back to you. Now what was lost in the garden has now been redeemed in another garden, on Calvary. So I hope you see this culmination of Matthew as this grand sweep of Matthew proclaiming Jesus is king and he brought with him a new kingdom and that those who follow him can be adopted into that kingdom, into that spiritual family where your heavenly father is your father and, and that out of relationship with him that you find out that you were made in his image, that you have a specific calling from God and God wants you as you discover him, discover more of you. And what you've been here to do. And So I thought it would just be a great um, capstone that we would celebrate communion together. As we look at Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and commission. That it's not just about Jesus redeeming the world. But it's about people that he's redeemed that could bring restoration to the world. Wow, it's an amazing picture. I pray that this week that God would begin to put that kingdom picture on our hearts and our minds and that when we go out into the world where God's kingdom is and and we get to bring the culture of heaven with us wherever we go, what an amazing opportunity to share our testimony, to share that Jesus truly is the King of Kings. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.